If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 33. Uh, chapter 33, chapter 34 as well. And that can be found in a Bible around you. We'll also have it on the screen so you can track along there as well. But all of us have moments in our lives, uh, probably like our entire lives, where we need to unlearn things that we have picked up that are false. And sometimes we have habits we need to unlearn. We have attitudes we need to unlearn. We have motivations we need to unlearn. We have uh, prejudices we need to unlearn. Just things that we've picked up that are wrong and we have to unlearn them. And so like for me, I'm not making this up. When I was growing up, I fully believed that fans of the University of Georgia were evil. Like full out evil. Um, like very black and white. They were good guys. They were bad guys. And so Georgia Tech, we were the good guys. We stood for all that was right and good in the world. And UGA, they were the bad guys and they worshiped the devil. I mean, like black and red. Those are their colors. That's the colors of Satan. I believed this. And it took a long time, and honestly, I'm probably still in process a little bit, to unlearn this. Things that are not true, but I believe that I have to unlearn. And that same principle holds when we come to our understanding of God as well. There are things that we pick up along the way a lot of times that are not true, but we believe them and we have to unlearn them. Because like when the fall happened, when sin entered the world, it not only marred God's good creation, it not only brought sin and suffering into the world, it affected how we think about God. And our thoughts now, our fallen natural inclinations are to see Him not as benevolent, but as malevolent. We so often put on Him and view Him wrongly, and we view Him first as like a taskmaster, and He's a bit harsh, and He just loves it when we mess up so He can pounce on us and get us. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We need to unlearn that idea and replace it with what the Bible says. We don't listen to our natural inclinations. Those will only give us a God like ourselves. God is not like us. He is wholly other. And so we need to look at the Scriptures to see what God is like. And that is how Exodus 33 and 34 largely serve us. And they point out to us, like, they answer the question, who is God? Like, I almost entitled the message, who is God? Because that's, that's what it is showing us. But the message is so heavily like weighted on His mercy and His grace that I just couldn't get away from like, my own soul feeling the Holy Spirit tell me, like, Joe, I am way, way, way more merciful than you give me credit for. And so that's like my main point today. That we would walk out of here almost giddy, skipping like a calf, understanding God is more merciful than we think. He is far, far more merciful than we think. 
And then like when we start processing that, like, okay, I see that. He is more merciful than we think. And we kind of grow and realize that a little bit. Then we realize, oh, he's even more merciful than that. And we grow in that. And we realize, oh, he's even more merciful than that. Like that should be our lifelong deal of unlearning the false truths about God and learning what the Bible tells us. He is more merciful than we could ever dare imagine. He absolutely is. And we only need to truly believe the Bible and not our natural inclinations to see this. The Bible spells it out from cover to cover. And one of the highlights of this, one of the high points of this, is in the text we have today, specifically 34 verses 6 and 7. But the context, you've got to understand the context so we can really see this. Context is like last week, chapter 32, golden calf, major idolatry, right? And so the way we described that is like the, the, the Israelites and God had, had uh, made pledges. They'd made a covenant. They'd made vows to one another. They had, you know, effectively put the ring on and said, I do. It was like a marriage between them. And then on the honeymoon, the Israelites basically slept around on God on the honeymoon. Like they betrayed Him. They committed idolatry. That's what they did. And so God, like any husband, wasn't happy about this. And so God did judge them for that. But He did not destroy them for that. He relented, as we talked about last week. And so chapter 33 is, you know, it begins in this context. Right after that, and Moses is still interceding for the people. He's still acting as a mediator, pointing us to Jesus, who is our mediator. He's still doing that. And he's interceding that God not file for divorce. He's interceding that God not take from them His presence. And after they dialogue a little bit, God says that He, he won't do that. He, he, he won't take His presence from them and Moses almost kind of asks him, okay, for proof of that, will you show me your glory? That's the request Moses makes. And if you have a background in Sunday school, this is a story you remember where, you know, uh, God hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by because, you know, if he sees him, his face is going to melt off and he's going to dissolve into nothing. He can't see God and, and live. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his, with his hand and he passes by, he sees the back of him. When he comes down from the mountain, his face is shining and glowing, right? That's, that's this story. But in the middle of it, when you like, don't just look at the story of the, the narrative. When you look at what God says specifically, what God says, we see that the, the heartbeat of this passage is on the fact that he is more merciful than we think he is. Like, there's no one in this room, like he's, whoever in this room thinks God is the most merciful per, like whoever has, equates God with the most mercy in this room, you're, you're wrong. It's more than that. It's always more than that. That's the heartbeat of this passage. And so this morning, what I want to give you is just, I want to give you three reasons to accept the truth that God is more merciful than you think. Three reasons. And the first one is this. We know that it's true that God is more merciful than we think because of the, number one, surprising definition of God's glory. 
We get a surprising definition here of God's glory. All right, so number one, because of the surprising definition of God's glory. And so look at verse 18. All right, we, I mean, again, Moses asks in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, what do you think of when you hear the phrase glory of God? Like, what comes to your mind? Maybe you think of like the universe and you think of all the planets and stars and none of them were. God spoke. They all came into existence to the tune of a hundred billion stars per galaxy. And we've seen maybe one billionth of the galaxies that are out there. Billions upon billions upon billions upon billions. Maybe you think of like Isaiah 6 and um, God in the... You know, the train of His robe fills the, the, the temple and cherubim and seraphim hide their faces from His holiness and they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Like maybe that's what you think of in His glory and all those things are absolutely true. Absolutely. Like when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about who God is. What He's like. Like what makes God, God. The glory of God is all about like the godness of God. And so it is super striking when we see God Himself define, surprising, His glory. So Moses asks to see His glory, and God replies, verse 19, yes, look, look what He says. And, he, and God said, I will make all my, not greatness that we might expect, I will make all my, y'all can read it, what does it say? Goodness. Pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, His covenant name, Yahweh. And then immediately, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And so Moses asked to see God's glory and God doesn't show him His greatness. He surprisingly shows him His goodness. Like God's glory is not just in all the greatness, glory is in His goodness, in His grace, which comes right after He says goodness, in His mercy. Like God's not just defined, like His glory is not just defined by His greatness, but actually His goodness. And this is crazy. Like I think this I hope this startles you. I hope this is striking. I hope this is surprising because it should be. But the word of God tells us that God's own definition of his glory includes his goodness. That's good news for us. His goodness. Like this passage is speaking with a megaphone in our ear. I am more merciful than you think I am. My glory is linked to my goodness, my grace, my mercy. And so reason to believe this, number one, is because of God's own surprising definition of His glory. Like, this is God's definition. Reason number two, and this isn't going to make sense at first, we will build to it. But I want you to go ahead and write it down. Reason number two is because of the asymmetric definition of His name. And because of the asymmetric definition of His name. We're going to build to this, so just stay with me for a minute. Go ahead and write that down, but let's read a little bit together. So chapter 33, verse 18, we read 18 and 19. Let's read from there now all the way through 
uh, chapter, or verse 9 of chapter 34. Follow along with me. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Like he's being protected by God from God. This is God's power and immensity. We can't stand in his presence on our own. Verse 23, then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. You remember like the tablets, like when Moses threw them down, that was symbolic of what the Israelites were doing. They were shattering fellowship with God. Yep, we see your word, don't care, broken. He's saying, I'm renewing the covenant. That's what the rest of the chapter is about. I'm renewing the covenant. Let's get some, the tablets back. I'll write on them again. That's grace. That's mercy. Didn't have to. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Like notice, he'd asked to see his glory we get no description of visionary things here. What we do get is like, like listening, like hearing things. I don't know if I forgot the word, but just stay with me. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. God's proclaiming this. And gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Like, don't take your presence from us. For as a stiff-necked people, that's us. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And so again, Moses asks to see God's glory, right? God says, okay, I'll show it. I'm going to show you my goodness. And then what essentially God does is he preaches a sermon to Moses on the mountain. And so like my text this morning, 33 and 34, right? God's text was his name. And just like I try to exposit and show you what, it, what this is, God 
exposits, he gives an exposition of his name and all the attributes that he piles up one on top of the other. Like that is the exposition of God's name. This is what it entails to be God. And when we look at the descriptors, we look at all these attributes, there is a, like it's asymmetric. Like in our fallen brains, we want a balance. Like God, okay, yeah, He's got some grace and mercy, but that is equal and opposite of like His wrath and His anger and He's after us and all of that. That's what we want. Like, but this startles us because it's just like grace, mercy, steadfast love for thousands of generations, keeping covenant, forgiving. And yes, there is justice, but it's tacked on at the end. Like, God's definition of Himself isn't balanced. It's weighted. He's more merciful than you think He is. He's more, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory check. He's more merciful than, than I, like any of us think He is. We will spend all of eternity realizing day by day by day, you are more merciful, kind, good, loving, long-suffering, slow to anger than I ever dreamed you were. This is God's definition of His self. It's not balanced. And again, it's calling out, Son, daughter, I am more merciful than you think I am. Promise. We should fill our, like just, inflame our hearts with love and appreciation and thankfulness to God. We're undeserving sinners. And this, just kind of a side note, this uh, passage here, verse 6 and 7, is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Like it's quoted dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. I've read one out of Psalm 103 a minute ago. David prays, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The prophet Joel also says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah, and did you guys see the guy who got swallowed by a whale this week? Did you see that? Yeah, can happen. But Jonah said the same thing when he complained about God's mercy to Nineveh. Like he, he didn't want God to forgive Nineveh, and so he's complaining about it. He's like, oh Lord, I didn't want to come because I knew that you are gracious, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like I knew you'd forgive him, so I didn't want to come because you're so gracious and so merciful. Like this phrase first mentioned to Moses, on the lips of God, is basically the Israelites' confession of faith. And it's a confession that megaphone in our ear, I'm more merciful than you think I am. Now if you want to know who God is, it's right here. Let's just walk through them. The Lord, the Lord, all right? Yahweh, Yahweh, covenant name here. And God is saying this. He's saying, here's who I am. I am a God merciful and gracious. Like the very first two words off of his mouth as a definition of who he is, is merciful and gracious. Like when you introduce someone, when you meet someone or you're introducing yourself, a lot of times you're going to 
talk, you know, about the first words out of your mouth are like, you know, very important. Very, like, here's my name, or here's what I do, or what. First words, I'm gracious and merciful. Again, we've got to unlearn some things because I would bet some of us, if we were going to, hey, give me some words to describe God, some of our first words wouldn't be gracious and merciful. It'd be justice or wrath, which he does have. But see the asymmetry of how God defines his name. He's waited on mercy. God doesn't, doesn't say, as one guy puts it, the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. He doesn't say, the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking either. He doesn't say, the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. No, he says, like, first words, most prominent thing about God, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. And we have got to hear this. Because a lot of times, our first thoughts about God and His character isn't that. But this is what God says. This is how God describes Himself. He is merciful and gracious. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Don't believe the false, instinctual thoughts you have about God. Believe the Bible. The Bible says about God that He is gracious and merciful. That's who God is. Don't recreate God in your image. He's different than us. God leads, first words, with these. And we've got to recover this in the church. The church in America seems to have like sunk to a place where it's become a higher theological priority to herald what we're against than basking in the noonday sun of God's love for us. He's with us. Why is my soul downcast? That He really is this wonderful. That He really is this kind. That He really is this gracious. That He doesn't just tolerate us, irritable, constantly disappointed. No, the Bible tells us. The Bible, not our natural inclination. Don't listen to our false, fallen brains. That would just give us a God like us, but God's not like us. The Bible tells us who God is. And first and foremost, it says He's gracious and merciful. But it keeps going. It also says, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. I mean, God is not trigger happy. He's not just waiting for you to do that thing so He can pounce on you and get you. That's not God. That's your fallen thoughts. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's slow to anger. Other translations would put long-suffering. Like if you read the Bible, I mean, if he's, long, if he's slow to anger, that means there is anger, right? We see that. We see God have anger. We see Jesus flips over the money changers, right, in the temple. We see anger. 
But like all throughout the Old Testament, every single time you come to a place where it talks about God's anger, it says, and God was provoked to anger. And God was provoked to anger. And God was provoked to anger. He's never, ever, ever provoked. He, he never, ever, ever has to be provoked to love. He never, ever, ever has to be provoked to be gracious. He never, ever, ever has to be provoked to be merciful. That's just who He is. His anger takes provocation. We are the absolute opposite. Like for us, well, for God, God needs no provoking to love, right? He needs provoking to anger. We need no provoking to anger, amen? But we do need provoking to love. That's why Hebrews says to provoke one another to faith and good works. God loves showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. He's slow to anger. I mean, the whole point of the Bible is God shows mercy to those who don't deserve it, right? The whole point of the Bible. We don't deserve it. God is good and gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. The next, we come to abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is covenant language. This is the I do. I, I, God, do take you Israelites as my bride, right? This is covenant language. And I will forever be steadfast in my love to you. I will forever be faithful. I will never quit. Ever, ever, ever. And then he's abounding in it. Have you guys seen the images of Lake Mead lately? Lake Mead's the lake out in uh, uh, Utah that's Hoover Dam. And um, it's at 36% of its capacity. Because the drought is so, so bad. It is lower than it's ever been since they built it. Sometimes we view God's love as a reservoir that could possibly run dry. And God's saying, wrong. Unlearn that. I am abounding. Never ending. It's not a reservoir that will run dry. I am abounding in steadfast love. There's always more to come. It, my love never stops. It never runs dry. It is as immeasurable and infinite as I am myself. Friends, be happy this morning. God is more merciful than you think. To you and those around you. Let's keep going. God is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. And if you, when you have a Bible, always check the footnotes. Like there's a little footnote number one right there. And so it's or to the thousandth generation. That's probably the better translation. To the thousandth generation. Which does not mean that he gets to like generation 1001. He's like, done. Like that's not what it's saying. But as Dane Ortland put it, which by the way, I recommended gentle and lowly in your book. Chapter 16, he exposits this passage. I am giving you a lot of what he says, adaptations, expansions. Read it. But 
But this idea of generation, steadfast love for the thousands to the thousandth, thousandth generation. Ortland writes this, it is, a, it is God's way of saying there's no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. Steadfast love for thousands. It just keeps going on. It doesn't end. And next we come to, the next thing we get is forgiving. God is forgiving. Again, he's loading up. Look at all the ace. Look at the, look at the, look at the asymmetry here. The, the, all the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the steadfast love and the faithfulness and the slow to anger. Like all this. I mean, it's so not even close to symmetric. It's so weighted on grace and mercy. And so forgiveness here, the, the Hebrew word means to lift or to carry. And that's exactly what God has done. He has lifted the burden in Christ of our sin off of our shoulders. And Jesus has borne it for us in our place. And to show how forgiving he is, he lists three specific things here. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity means turning aside from what is good. Transgression is a lot more purposeful. Transgression is, yep, I know your law. Yep, I know what it says, and I don't give a flip. I'm going to do what I want to do. It is purposeful transgression, purposeful treason. And so anyone who does that is a traitor to God. So here's the dirty little secret. You're looking at a traitor, and you're sitting next to traitors. Everybody is a traitor to God. And the whole purpose of listing iniquity, transgression, sin is just to show us that God forgives all three of these things. He forgives traitors. Like sometimes we're so weighted down with guilt that we wonder whether there's any way God could possibly forgive me for this. And we're tempted to feel that we've, what we've done is so evil that we have fallen beyond the reach of His grace. I told Him I would never do this again, and I did it again. There's no way He'll ever forgive me again. He will. Now, you don't presume on that, then you don't understand His grace and His mercy to begin with. But He will forgive you. He's more generous and, merc and more gracious and merciful than you think. Like however we define what we have done, our sin, our iniquity, transgression, whatever you would put it, God is willing to forgive our kind of sinning. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is who God is. And yet he is also the last one we get here, verse 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we've got generations again. Earlier, thousand. Here, three or four. And that's important. Dane Ortland again, is helpful when he writes, this closing element, though initially hard to hear, is vital. And on reflection fosters further comfort because without it, all that's come before might be misunderstood as mere leniency. But God is not a softy. He is the one perfectly just person in the universe. God is not mocked, right? We reap what we sow. 
sin and guilt passed down from generation to generation. We see this, just look around at the world. Like, I'm passing on to my kids my idols. It's not good. I'm passing on my bad attitudes, my bad motivations. I inherited some from my parents. But God says this just happens to the third and fourth generation, and His mercy, His steadfast love, goes to the thousandth generation, and that is a big difference and important to note. Yep, we're going to pass on sinful attitudes, actions, motivations, idols, but God's goodness will be passed down in a way that swallows those up. That's why you're not a... I'm just going to be like my parents? Nope. God's grace changes things. God's mercy changes things. It swallows those things up. It goes to the thousandth. This does not. Because this, like, all of this, every, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faith, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Like, all, this is who God is. And the asymmetry of this like should start with, I mean, this is his own definition. This is God. I'm not making, God saying, here's who I am. Not even close. And so we need to let go of those things in our minds that aren't true. The false thoughts we have about God. He's after me. He doesn't like me. He just wants to get me. Believe the Bible, not your fallen thoughts. And so the surprising definition of God's glory that's linked to His goodness, that tells us that it's true that His mercy is more than we can imagine, more than we think. And the asymmetric definition of His name, well, that tells us that it's true. But then finally... The glorious incarnation of His Son tells us it's true. And so the third reason to believe this, number three in your notes, because of the glorious incarnation of His Son. Because of the glorious incarnation of His Son. And so, Sunday school time, I do want you to talk back here. What was it that Moses asked initially that he wanted to see? God's glory. He wanted to see God's glory. He asked to see that, and he couldn't fully because, it, you know, again, it incinerated him. But what, that was his request. Show me your glory. And God preached a sermon to him. But listen to the words of John chapter 1. Flip over there if you have a Bible with you. It'll be on the screen, so you can just follow along if you want to do that. But John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so just like Trinity, teaching about the Trinity for a minute, right there you have unity and distinction. The Word was with God, so along with, right? So distinct from, but then... Uh, and the Word was God. So you've got unity and distinction between the Father and the Son. Keep going. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt. Remember, we talked about tabernacled. That's what the Word literally is, like the tabernacle. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like in Jesus, we have seen what Moses asked to see. We've seen His glory, full of grace and truth. Like in Exodus 34, we are told of God's heart, but in the incarnation of His Son, we are shown God's heart. Like Jesus, I mean, God preaches a sermon to Moses and exposits His name. Well, Jesus is the incarnate exposition of God's name. I mean, you look at Jesus. He's gracious. Goodness gracious, He's gracious, right? So gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. Right? You want to see God, you look at Jesus. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps His love forever. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. If you have any doubts on God's mercy, that He's more merciful than you think He is, look at the life of Jesus. And then if you have any more doubts still, look at the death of Jesus. In your place, for your sin, taking your condemnation, what you deserve, what we deserve, on Himself, giving you His righteousness, merciful. You got any more doubts? Look at His resurrection. You got any more doubts? Look at His intercession for us right now. You got any more doubts about His mercy? Look at the fact that He's going to come again and He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. All sad things are going to come untrue. If you have any doubts about God's mercy, look at Jesus. And so if you're struggling this morning, like in the midst of suffering, something, circumstances going on right now, or just my life has not turned out the way I expected it to turn out, I'm disappointed in my life, I'm disappointed in you, God, why did it? Listen, God is gracious and merciful and He's compassionate. He's with you. He's not against you. He's right there. He cares about your situation. Yours. Because He cares about you. You. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He loves you more than you love yourself. Now you weigh down with guilt. Jesus is forgiving. He's gracious. He's merciful. And takes away our sin as far as the east is from the west. Are you filled with doubt and anxiety and worry and fear? Jesus is loving and faithful. He will keep His promises. Now, we talked about all throughout Exodus, 
He always keeps His promises, but almost never how we expect Him to do it. But He does it. Always. And so, friends, the, the call this morning to you, right, to take what I want you to do is I, I want you to know that God's more merciful than you think He is. I want you to know that He loves you. I want you to bask in the noonday sun of God's heart for you and that you would be warmed and inflamed by that to live for Him. That He's a good, good Father. He's a friend. He loves you. He's for you. And that you would unlearn any false ideas that you've picked up along the way about who God is and instead believe the Bible. What God says about who He is. He's far more merciful than you think. And so while on earth, this, you know, many things do seem to be too good to be true, with Christ it's impossible to be too good to be true. Because His goodness is infinite. And His glory is linked to His goodness. He's more merciful than you think. I promise. Let's pray. Father, we confess we don't view you rightly. We, and part of it is because we can't. Our minds, just as Moses would have been incinerated to see your face, our minds would melt if we had even more than two drops in an ocean worth of understanding your mercy. It is so vast. It is so beyond us. We can't comprehend it. But Lord, would you help us today to comprehend a little bit more? To know it in our gut, not just in our head that we can spout off an answer and regurgitate something on a test if it was. But we know that we know that we know that we know that you are gracious and merciful. You are steadfast to your people. You don't quit on us. Even when we commit idolatry and we, 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 we commit spiritual adultery and, we, and, you're, and there's anger and there's hurt, even on your part of what we do, if we're going to speak in human terms, you still are gracious and merciful. You don't give us what we deserve. We deserve annihilation. We deserve to be taken out. And you did send Jesus to take that all for us. Jesus got what we deserve. And we get what Jesus deserves because of the transaction he made. So God, inflame our hearts today with love for you. And we would bask in your, in your son. In Jesus' name.